right now on the Ringer Gambling Feed and all throughout the entire month of August, the East Coast Bias Boys are getting you ready to bet the NFL this season. We're going through each and every single division and revealing our favorite futures, predicting division winners, and even giving you some award winners. Do we think the Kansas City Chiefs will repeat or will they be dethroned? Tune in now to find out on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Ringer NFL. Just go to Indeed.com slash Ringer NFL right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the Ringer NFL show. I'm Nora Princiati. I am here, as always, with the fabulous Stephen Rees. Stephen, say hello to everyone. Hi, everyone. Uh, two more weeks. Are you excited? Can you feel it? Are you dreading it? it? No, I'm, I'm kind of excited. I'm really, I mean, we're going to talk about the last episode of Hard Knocks today. It's 53-man roster week. We're going to talk about some of the news from that. Like, it's getting real. When you're starting to think about Clayton Thune, you know football season's right around the corner. That's how you know, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So as as uh as Steven mentioned, big Clayton Thune Newsweek, big Newsweek in general. So we're gonna spend the show today just talking about all of the big stories that came out of um roster trimming day, just sort of what we're noticing as teams start to take shape. We're gonna talk a little bit about the Cardinals, talk a little bit about the Bengals. Then we will finish up our Hard Knocks recap series, and we're going to talk to our Ringer colleague, Katie Baker, about a story she did last week, which we both thought was really interesting about all of these like Netflix football docs. There's the new Florida Gators one. Obviously, uh, this was the summer of, of quarterback, and that that whole genre of content and what it's been like to create, which ones have been successful, which ones haven't. Katie wrote a whole story about um, how that happened, how it fits into Netflix's sports strategy, a bunch of other stuff. I thought it was really interesting. So she's going to hop on and talk to us about it. However, before we get to that, we will start nowhere else. Other than at the bottom of the NFL power rankings with the Arizona Cardinals, who made, I think, one of the splashier decisions of um, the start of this roster week by Cutting Colt McCoy, um, I would argue that Colt McCoy news is probably a step up from Clayton Toon news. However, this is only really all that meaningful because Kyler Murray is still on PUP, is going to miss at least four games at the start of the season. Colt has been QB1 in Arizona since the spring because Kyler is is um, recovering from injury. And so Clayton Toon 
probably starting week one in Arizona. Maybe Josh Dobbs getting a second consecutive important regular season start after starting the most important game for the Tennessee Titans last year out of nowhere. Why does Josh Dobbs just keep showing up out of nowhere? I didn't even know he was like in the competition. Josh Dobbs is like sort of the Grim Reaper meme. Like he just appears to cut you down. Um, The Cardinals are tanking. I know this is not something that we're supposed to say because tanking is bad and not allowed, but the Cardinals are quite obviously taking. They have cut DeAndre Hopkins. They have let veterans like Zach Allen and Byron Murphy, who are now starters for other teams, go elsewhere. They traded Isaiah Simmons, who was a first rounder in 2020, to the Giants for a seventh round pick. Not saying you could have gotten something akin to what they spent on him in return for Isaiah Simmons at this point, but a seventh round pick is is NFL pocket change. Uh, So I think we can say pretty clearly that the Cardinals are tanking. I think it's better than the alternative. The question to me then is just what does this mean for for Kyler? Because if they are tanking so obviously, it means that they want to be in position for the number one overall pick to potentially draft Caleb Williams. So you have this once franchise quarterback who's signed to a big deal, who's recovering from this massive injury, who's not going to play at the start of the year. Clearly, the team does, is not interested in, in playing games, even though Jonathan Gannon had the moment of the week where he said that he will not name a week one starter to maintain a quote competitive advantage. But if you're Kyler Steven, what's the deal? Uh, I mean, you're next buddy. It's only a matter of time. And if you're Kyler, you're waiting for that moment. I think it's easy to forget how good Kyler was a couple years ago when the Cardinals were nine and oh, everyone was talking about them as maybe the best team in the NFC. Uh, Kyler Murray was an MVP candidate. We were talking about it. And then it went, to hell in like a couple of weeks but you go back to two years ago you even go back to last year and watch some of his film he's still a very good quarterback he's still like a fringe top 10 quarterback maybe a top 10 quarterback if he can stay healthy so the cardinals have something here uh but like you said they're if they're not tanking they're at least not trying to win these aren't the moves of a team that's trying to win like the free agent signings they had cap space they didn't really spend it they it was you this offseason was used as a purge of the roster, which really was needed. Like this is yeah. what they needed to do. They needed to get rid of all these players they took a chance on. Like Isaiah Isaiah Simmons figured to be a big part of the future, but it didn't work out. He like wasn't working out as a player. Uh they tried him at safety, they tried him at linebacker, didn't work out. Time to move on. So I think this is like a, a necessary year. And it comes on the heels of a season where I think they were a little bit naive, maybe the last two seasons where they were trying to sign these veteran stars, kind of like, let's let's go for it. Let's go all in only the wrong way to do it. You don't go all in by signing AJ green to like a a one year (laughs) flyer deal. Uh, So I think it was like a sense of awareness that they didn't have before. And this is the perfect year to do it. When you look at the quarterbacks, you look at Caleb Williams, look at Drake may, these are quarterbacks. That can uplift a franchise, that can turn around a franchise, a franchise that we consider inept could be turned around with the right draft pick. Like we had those same conversations about the Bengals. We talked about how cheap they were, about how they wouldn't pay guys. And then Joe Burrow comes along and everything seemingly changes. I think the Cardinals have at the very least put themselves in a position to get one of those guys this year, which is a lot better than having question marks about your quarterback, whether he can even play a full season, whether he's dedicated enough, whether he even wants to play football, whether like baseball is always an option for him. I think it's a good reset for the Cardinals. It's going to be terrible this year, 
This is the worst team in the NFL. You look at their roster and it's not even like a youth movement. It's not like the Rams where you look at their roster and it's like a bunch of UDFAs and a bunch of rookies playing. This is like solid vets, like in their sixth year. It's just a bad roster and they're going to lose a lot of games. The tank is good. I, I Again, I know we're not supposed to to say out loud that they're tanking. They're so obviously tanking. And that's that's what they should be doing. That's the smartest way. I mean, the way that they they navigated the draft was, I think, the smartest thing they did all offseason. And this is absolutely, as you said, a team in need of a reset. Um, that's what happens when you go out and sign the 2014 All-Stars and, and try to make it work that way and then have some bad luck on top of that with your quarterback getting hurt. I, I just, the which to your point, I think does does mean that Kyler will ultimately be next, but that's a tricky situation to navigate just because they will want something meaningful in, in return. They should have interested teams. I agree with you. I think the needle has, has gone too far down on Kyler Yeah, when we're really just responding to a situation in which the team as a whole and the offense as a whole is just a total mess. And he was throwing to a lot of guys who had their best best years behind them. Offensive line hasn't been good. Coaching hasn't been great. All of the above, I think, is much more meaningful than Kyler Murray's just bad. Now, now for a quarterback who does rely a lot on mobility, obviously, him coming off the injury, he could have lost something in that. And I think that'll be something that teams are really, really curious about. But they should be able to find trading partners for Kyler it's still just a hard needle to thread because he's expensive. You have the injury concern. He doesn't have the best reputation as a nose to the grindstone player. Some of that is probably unfair. They certainly did him no favors with the homework clause ordeal. But it's just going to be, I think, easier said than done of, oh, you know, Tyler's been a top 10 quarterback. I'm sure they'll be able to find someone, but the tank only makes sense if you're replacing, if you're, if you're going for a replacement at that position. So if, if I'm any other team, right, I'm starting to think about, all right, Cowboys just took this, this flyer on Trey Lance, which we're reading as they want insurance if things don't work, work out with Dak Prescott. If you're in that personnel office, do you start to make a little note of, okay, well, if that doesn't work either, maybe we think about this guy. Or if you're the Patriots who currently don't have a backup and maybe you're not sure if Mac Jones is your guy, you start to think, could Kyler be someone that we might take a chance on in a year or so? I, I'm just throwing stuff out there, but it's just a tricky, it's, I, I don't see any teams where I go, you know, this is the most obvious fit. I guess maybe the Vikings, um, since they're not totally committed to Kirk. But it's it's again, he's just such a specific player. There's a lot of places he could go. He's a he's a talented guy, obviously. Is there anyone who you you would be flagging right now of if I'm in this front office, I start thinking about what we might be willing to spend on a Kyler Murray trade? I think I think the answer are going to be more obvious in a couple of months, but I think like looking ahead to potential situations where we're wondering if the quarterback is the right guy, like Detroit, for instance, is a team that doesn't jump out as a team that needs a quarterback right now, but might need one in a year or two. 
Miami's another one. We don't know what's going to happen with Tua. He's falling a lot better. I don't know if you saw the clip, but he, he he's officially learned how to fall. He's a great faller. Uh, teams like that, I think, could, could emerge. But I, I do think we're going to... We're going to be having a discussion about how good Kyler Murray is going to be. Whenever he comes back, whenever that trade happens, I think the, the conversation is going to be a little warped. And I think people around the league kind of are buying into this narrative that the Cardinals kind of started by leaking the information about the contract. Or I don't know if it came from his agent or whatever. But I, I do think whatever team trades for him is going to be getting a, a value deal. Like, they're not going to have to give yeah. up as many picks because he's not the prototype quarterback, like you said. He's, like, a very unique guy that you have to kind of fit the offense around. And then we haven't seen him play, and he hasn't been able to stay healthy. So if I'm one of those organizations and I'm not in a position to get a Caleb Williams or Drake May, like the Patriots, for instance, who might be a little too good for, to, to fall in that range, I'm absolutely looking into Kyler. And I'm looking into trading for him as soon as possible because I think, one— if we don't see him come back and kind of get the reminders that he's a, a better player, a better player than we remember, I think the price might go up a little bit. But I think if you trade for him right now, this might be the time when his price is at its lowest because we haven't seen him play. All we're thinking about is the contract stuff. We haven't seen him play well since the contract. So I wouldn't be surprised if a team makes a play for him in a month or two if he's able to get healthy enough to pass the physical. That is, yeah, I really wouldn't either, especially because if if you're Kyler. He's not stupid, right? He can see the writing on the wall. His only incentive to play for them this season, other than avoiding fines, is to show what he has and therefore hopefully have a little bit more leverage. You know, obviously in, in a trade, it's more complicated than that. But to incentivize having a good market out there and maybe he gets some sort of say in, in um, how that ends up panning out. Other than that, I, maybe I'm... I'm going overboard here, but other than avoiding fines, what is Kyler's incentive to be bought into the Arizona Cardinals? They're very clearly not bought into him. They're also, by the way, if I'm Jonathan Gannon, I am seriously worried about being <laughs> a one and done coach there. Because if you do all of this to draft a quarterback number one overall, I'm not sure that your defensive head coach, especially if the results in this year are, are tough, which they definitionally have to be in order to be able to draft a Williams, draft a Drake May, whoever it ends up being. He's going to have a bad reputation as a non-winning coach, even though they're not trying to win and probably isn't the guy that you would say, oh, I'm bringing in this super talented number one overall pick quarterback. I want, you know, a fresh guy to to shepherd him into being our franchise starter. So I I support the tank. I'm on board for the tank. The tank is the right idea. The tank's probably going to be painful for an, a number of people involved. Not only did they do the tank, but they also had their eggs in another basket because they they made the trade with Houston. So if Houston ends up being bad, they don't even have to fully commit to the tank. So I think I feel like they're gonna have a good idea of how they need to operate over the second half of the season based on how Houston does, based on how they do. And I think that might dictate Kyler Murray's future. If he ever plays again for this team, I think that's gonna dictate it. But you have to think Jonathan Gannon had a conversation about what this year was going to look like and what the expectations were. Like you look at the roster, 
I see maybe one player that I guarantee know for a fact is going to be on the roster in 2025, and that's Paris Johnson. The right tackle, or the offensive tackle, they just drafted. Everyone else, like, is on the chopping block. I don't see like their their day two picks are a couple of backup wide receivers and a backup outside linebacker. There's not a, like a foundation to even build around. It's not even like a young a core of young players you need to get out on the field that you need to see play. Like the quarterback position explains it all. Clayton Toon yeah. is not going to be your answer. Josh this Dobbs, is- we know, is not the answer. This is a, a year zero. The Houston pick to me is is icing on the cake. I don't think their I don't think their plan is let's watch it and see how it goes and we can sort of dictate how we perform the last how we address the last part of the season based on that. This team is tanking. This team is trying to lose games. I I sorry. Like it's a good idea. You're not supposed to do it, but really what the rules say is that you're just not allowed to say it out loud. I'm allowed to say it out loud though. The Cardinals are very obviously tanking. Okay. Does Jonathan Gannon know? Has anyone let him know? Is he going to say it out loud? Yes. Jonathan Gannon knows. He knew. He knew when he said competitive advantage. He knew when those words left his lips that he was absolutely full. He knew when they tampered for him. That's the the (laughs) surest sign of of, of tanking. You tampered for Jonathan. Oh, what a time. What a team. All right. in non-tanking team news, Joe Burrow still not practicing. August 30th, as we're recording this, Zach Taylor uh, yesterday said, we'll see if he's going to be back later this week. Taylor also said that it is not contract related. Burrow obviously still hasn't, hasn't um, come to an agreement with the team on an extension. But Taylor also said that he has a, quote, very healthy body. Um, so... Trying to make sense of this all. Coach says it's not about the contract, but also a four-week calf strain keeping Joe Burrow out of practice wouldn't be ideal either, but also he has a very healthy body. What do you think is going on here, Steve? It, it was a very strange line. He was very vague about what parts of Burrow's body are most healthiest. Uh, he didn't really speak about the calf specifically, but... I think from the outside looking in, it's easy to write it off as like a non-issue just because Joe Burrow is Joe Burrow. Like, you know, he's going to be a productive quarterback. But we've seen the last two years, his training camp kind of get disrupted and he got off to a slow start. Mm -hmm. So I think that would be the worry is that he's a quarterback that kind of like takes some time to kind of settle in, get a sense of the, uh, the speed, get a sense of the timing of the offense and all that. That's the one concern. But... I, I really don't think this is a contract issue. I don't think this would be the go the way to go about resolving a contract issue or getting an offer that you want faster. Uh, just milking a calf injury, and it doesn't just it just doesn't seem like something that Burrow would do anyway. Like he seems to be a guy that's putting the team first. Like he's saying all the right things in public when he talks about the contract. He's talking about being mindful of keeping the team together, keeping the roster strong. So I, it, it, would, it wouldn't make a lot of sense if all of a sudden now he injured his calf and was like, okay, now let's ride this and let's you know use it as leverage for the contract. But I would be a little tiny bit concerned if I was a Bengals fan just because of the tough division. It's a tough conference they're in. They don't really have a margin for error. You know how important it is to win games and get home field advantage against like the Bills and the Chiefs. You don't want to be going to Buffalo. You don't want to be going to Kansas City, even though you guys have had success there. 
But that would be my one concern is how it's going to affect the start of the season. Cause we have seen Burrow last year. I think it was his appendix the year before I'm forgetting what the injury was, but there was a slight injury. And I know there was like some discomfort with our chase kind of hit the, the ground his finger? slowly. Yeah, it was his finger. I think that's what it was. So I think that's the main concern. I'm not concerned about the injury overall. I don't think, although calf injuries do tend yeah, to linger a little so, bit. To play devil's advocate, I think the the if if you want a concern troll here, it's that it's been a month. And I do. And <laughs> and you know we do. <laughs> it's been a month since he since he heard it, and because that is an injury that can linger, I don't think that's great. That he's still not able to practice at this point, but you hope that they're just being very cautious. The reason I would say I think this is no big deal is they cut Trevor Simeon and Reed Sinet, um, which means that they are either very, very comfortable with Jake Browning and or Will Greer, uh, who Adam Schefter's reported they're going to add to the practice squad. Or they think Bro's going to be absolutely fine. Um, yeah. And although I, I, I would say like that moving on from Reed Sinet isn't like the surest sign of confidence. I think that that would have been a move. All right. That fine. Was made. I didn't need to. I didn't need to include Reed Sinet in that. But for the record, <laughs> for our listeners edification, Reed Sinet is no longer a bangle. They cut Trevor Simeon. They cut the guy who's been been the main backup. So, you think Simeon and Sinet are going to show up in Arizona anytime soon? Get them involved <laughs> in the mix. Although Simeon might be too good. Like, I'm a uh, Trevor Simeon truther. That guy can play. The NFL Trevor doesn't realize Simeon, it, but I realize Trevor it. Simeon versus Josh Dobbs, Angel of Death off. <laughs> the number of, by the way, the, uh, do the backup quarterback transactions feel like a little out of control to you? Yeah, I see what you're saying. They're like kind of just like playing musical chairs. <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? Because I barely explained it. I just, no, so no. Like, okay. Nathan Peterman gets cut. There's all of these. Like, so the Patriots do not currently have a backup behind Mac Jones. They cut Bailey Zappi. Um, In in, uh, Buffalo and Miami, it's a little bit different because um, I think Mike White is still dealing with a concussion. It's it's more injury related. But there are a lot of these teams where it's just sort of like, um, excuse me, if your starter gets hurt. Uh, like Justin Fields, if Justin Fields gets hurt, the Bears' current backup, because they cut Peterman and they cut P.J. Walker, is Tyson Badgett, who's an undrafted free agent out of Division II Shepherd University. I, I've got I some connections probably- with Shepherd University. Uh, so I, I, I know his lore, and I, I, I wasn't surprised <laughs> that he kind of won, he won out. Like I'm in a uh, I'm in a Madden league with the guy that does like play by play for Shepherd University. So I, I, I know. do not know Tyson Badgent lore. I didn't know Tyson Badgent had lore. Oh yeah, his dad is like he's not quite Lavar Ball, but he's in that genre. <laughs> like he's very confident in his son's ability to play football at the NFL. Wait, this is incredible. Look it up. Yeah. So he, he's, he's not surprised at all. He's not no, surprised at no. all that Tyson Badgent beat out Nathan Peterman and PJ Walker. Tyson is cashing checks that his dad mouth wrote. He's he's backing it up too. So yeah, I stand uh, corrected. And I think then. you know what I think it is. I think when the league announced that teams were going to be able to have three quarterbacks on the roster, like teams were pre- preparing for that, and backup quarterbacks are like, oh, an extra job for us. Like that's that's good for everyone. Uh, but only thirteen teams have taken advantage of that rule compared to last year. There was twelve teams. 
that had three quarterbacks on the roster. So I feel like we spent a lot of time talking about this in the offseason after the 49ers game, but NFL teams don't seem to care. And they I don't think it's going to make any difference. Like the Eagles and the 49ers have three quarterbacks, but the Eagles have already done that in the past. The 49ers are like the one team that it's like when uh, someone brings up something that happened to them in life or like a, a, a hypothetical situation and it's very specific and it's like, okay, this actually happened to you. The 49ers yeah. are that one team. They're like, like, what if you're in the NFC championship and like your quarterbacks get hurt and you don't have a guy like we should have a rule in place. <laughs> and then everyone's McCaffrey. like, that's never going to happen. Like that. It was just to placate the 49ers and that's it. But it doesn't seem like a rule that's really affecting anybody. And like the quarterbacks, the back of quarterbacks are actually have fewer jobs, it seems. Well, right. That's the part that doesn't make sense is like we went through this whole thing for them to be allowed to have three. And now there are several teams who are currently carrying one single one, count them one quarterback. Now that obviously won't last, but maybe because they had, maybe because these teams were going out and like adding to their quarterback rooms being like, oh, we might be able to, you know, we might want to carry three. We might want to think about it. Is it possible they just signed a lot of guys who aren't very good? Yes. And now, Especially in the case of, of the Bengals with those names you uh, listed off. Not with the and the Patriots. Imagine, it, also, RIP to two hype trains. The Bailey Zappi hype train, which lasted about a year. And the Malik Cunningham And the Malik train, Cunningham hype train. Seriously. Which lasted about a week. <laughs> he got a couple of reps in practice and, and he had a couple good throws in that first preseason game. Apparently, it's been all downhill from there. because I was into it. I was on the Malik Cunningham hype train. I think I still am. Whatever. Get him in, get him in Arizona. <laughs> Give him a couple like uh, starts. this graveyard. See what happens. Why? <laughs> First of all, how dare you? How dare you suggest? How dare you advocate for Malik Cunningham to start having to pay for his, his <laughs> team facility dinner every night? I wouldn't wish that on you, Malik. You gave me excitement in the preseason, and that's that's all that I can ask for. I hope you go to the Ravens or the Vikings or one of the teams that you know has free massages and a day spa in the team facility. I I I wish the best to Malik Cunningham. Same. Okay. Well, we'll see what happens with Bengals. I'm not terribly worried because of of um the Jake Browning of it all, but it is getting a little weird. It's just been too long. A month is too long to have a lingering calf strain. All right, we're going to talk about the dolphins next, but first, let's take a quick break. Get ready for the NFL season with incredible offers from FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers can bet $5 and get 200 in bonus bets guaranteed. Plus, all customers who bet $5 will get $100 off NFL Sunday ticket from YouTube and YouTube TV. If Hard Knocks has you super excited about the Jets, maybe you want to jump on Aaron Rodgers in week one. They're getting two and a half at home against a Bills defense that's going to be without Von Miller for the first month of the season. And now is the best time to join FanDuel. The app is easy to use and you can bet on everything from spreads to player props and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash Ringer NFL and kick off the NFL season with an offer you won't want to miss. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. 
Must be 21 plus and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. NFL Sunday ticket offer ends September 18th, 2023. No refunds. Terms and embargoes apply. $100 off NFL Sunday ticket, not YouTube TV. YouTube TV base plan required to watch YouTube TV. Redemption requires a Google account and current form of payment. Commercial use excluded. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm personal price plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Ringer NFL. Just go to Indeed.com slash Ringer NFL right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We are back. And you know who else is back? Christian Wilkins. And it is holding in Miami. Thing that was interesting to this uh to me about this was that it came out when he came back that the Dolphins received trade offers for Wilkins, but said that he wasn't available. They didn't want to trade him. And also Christian Wilkins said that he didn't want to be traded. So this is like the this was the friendliest holdout of all time, it seemed like. Yeah, I wonder if that's going to be a new thing where you you don't put a player on the trading block, but you kind of voice your 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 receptiveness to trading him. Because like we saw this with Lamar, who kind of was had like a soft trade request, and what that really was what like was Baltimore and Lamar kind of figuring out where his value was. And I think when whenever you're like stuck in these situations where. With Lamar, it's different. Like a quarterback, you usually just pay him. But with Lamar, obviously, there's concerns about him staying healthy. There's concerns about his his playing style, although I think those are overblown. So it was kind of a tricky situation where you're asking a question about value and how much he's worth to the team. And I think with Christian Wilkins, like a defensive tackle, that's a more natural conversation to have. Uh, sure. We had it with like even Aaron Donald when he was up for a new contract. But defensive tackles are getting paid like $23 million a year now. Christian Wilkins wants that type of money. He wants to reset the market as any top player does whenever they sign a new deal. And I think it's smart for Miami to kind of, I don't know, drag their feet with it. I I don't know if that's the best way to do business is to just pay a defensive tackle, a position that is very important on the field, but not one that you typically pay, you know, $20 million a year to. So I think they could see how the rest of the league views him, how he might get paid when he hits the market. And it gives them, a, a, I guess, a better sense of how to proceed with these contract negotiations. And I think it also provides like a realistic view of his value for Christian Wilkins himself. So I, I, like you said, it was a harmless holdout. And I think it's a very important player that they need to have for this season yeah. specifically with how they have built their team, how they're ready to win right now with their players. And just Vic Fangio's defense in general has needed that type of presence on the interior. They've already lost. 
Jalen Ramsey, I don't think that they can afford to lose any more star power on that side of the ball. They tried to come to an agreement on an extension too, and um, the beat writers in Miami, there was a lot of reporting that the issue was just coming to a landing spot on the total amount of guarantees. Take that. I mean, what that means is sort of is is hard to figure out because you can read that as, oh, they're really far apart. They couldn't come to an agreement or they couldn't quite make it work on the guarantee structure. But maybe they did make some headway in terms of where a deal for him would fit in in the greater landscape at that position, because, as you said, a question for him is resetting the market. Um but it seems I don't know that that the way that this ended makes it seem like at least there aren't a lot of hurt feelings going around. And he is such an important piece for them. So that seems like good news in South Florida. Worst news. Colts and Jonathan Taylor still not in a good place. He has not been traded, but he will start the year on the PUP list, which means that he would miss the first four games. Um, been a new round of. Kareem Hunt sort of scuttlebutt about whether or not Indy might look to add him. I don't know which way it cuts that the Colts will get a look one way or another at their offense without Jonathan Taylor with Anthony Richardson. It's not ideal for those of us who would like to see Anthony Richardson start his NFL career in a, in a great place that that is going to be at least for a month, if not more, if they do end up trading him without Jonathan Taylor. Um, I, I still think that the Colts should be the most motivated team in the league to figure this out. But the fact that the value he can potentially provide them is now down four games of, of work is not a step in the, the right direction as far as that goes. And it doesn't seem like they're planning to be without Jonathan Taylor this season, just based on their running back room as it stands right now. They only have right. three running backs. One of them's a rookie in Evan Hall. Uh, Zach Moss isn't the type of guy, like when you're a team that's built around the run, which we presume that the Colts are going to be as Anthony Richardson kind of comes along in his development. Obviously, the one thing that he can do well at a high level at this point is run the football. So I'm expecting a lot of runs. And if you're building your offense around the run game, Zach Moss isn't the type of player you want to build it around. I think we talked about it last week, the need for explosive plays in this offense. I don't think Alec Pierce, one of the players that we said was the X factor in the AFC South, hasn't made the leap this preseason that maybe Indianapolis was hoping for, like to be that downfield, big play, explosive uh, reception threat. So they're going to need Jonathan Taylor. I don't know where the big plays are going to come from if he's not here. Uh, the answer is not on the roster as it stands right now, eight, seven days from the regular season starting. So I think that the Colts feel confident they're going to be able to rein Jonathan Taylor in a little bit and at least get him on board for this season. Beyond that, I don't know if they're committed to his future, but just reading the tea leaves and how they're operating with their roster moves, I think they're confident he's going to be back. Yeah, I mean, I think especially if things work if things work out with Richardson, there's a way in which the fact that, you know, they'll they'll they should have an effective RPO game. He provides so much in general as an athletic talent with his legs. They can 
their run game should be fine. I think in some ways you don't feel the impact of losing a Jonathan Taylor in the basic like first and second down ways. Yeah. As much as you might think you, but it's, it is the explosive playability where if they don't, you know, absent some other move or getting him back and having him be effective, just don't know where that's coming from, which is the bulk of what we talked about when we talked about this last time. It's not like, do you have a stable and productive ground right. game? They can, they're going to be able to do that if Anthony Richardson is, you know, even 75% of the guy that we think he is. It's more, where do you get plays of 20 plus from? That And that's the point I made last week. I feel like we kind of learn these big lessons from like the analytics community about like how you should build your roster. And like one of the the big lessons is that the running game doesn't matter. And like running backs don't really move the needle in the run game. But I, I like I said last week, I think that's different for each and every team in each individual case. Like if you're the chiefs, for instance, just having that productive, reliable down to down run game that gets you three to four yards on first down, like that works for you. Cause you have Patrick Mahomes and everything's going to be fine on third down anyway. But for the, like we've been saying, the Colts, it's just not the model. It's just not the way the team is set up. They need that big play threat. And the only person on the roster that can provide it is Jonathan Taylor right now. Another holdout slash player team conflict news that I think is pretty real. Chris Jones has been placed on reserve. Do not report in Kansas City. Looking pretty likely that he's going to miss the start of the season. There, he tweeted last week that he's prepared to hold out until week eight. Still no indication of exactly why it's week eight. Um, he's already swallowed $2 million in fines for holding out during training camp. And I think you can tell that the Chiefs are pretty nervous about this one because they made a trade with the Raiders. Division rival, you don't see those teams trade with each other as often as outside the division. It does happen. It happens more than it used to, but it's still something that I think is a, is a consideration. They made a trade for um, Neil Farrell, second year defensive lineman. Obviously Neil Farrell is not Chris Jones, um, but I do think it underscores the fact that they just don't have a lot of depth there and they don't have a lot of high caliber talent at that position without Jones who was, I mean, first in snaps among defensive linemen last year, first in pressures, first in pass rush win rate, first in wins against double teams, first in sacks created against double teams. There's no one who's going to be able to fill in for that, but I think they are trying to prepare in some way, shape, or form to be without him for a substantial part of the season, which (laughs) I'm not here to tell you that you know, this spells the downfall of the Chiefs. If they can live life without Tyreek Hill without missing a beat, they could probably live life without Chris Jones for a while without losing too much. But for their defense, uh, it's hard to come up with something that would be a bigger deal than this. So I, I, I think this is maybe one of the most impactful stories of training camp. The fact that this seems like it's going to linger into the regular season. Yeah, definitely. Because he's been the heart of the defense. For the last couple of years now, uh, there was that one season when he kind of moved over to end like he went. He was a perimeter edge rusher for a season right. and he kind of experimented with that. And it just didn't work. And the defense was so bad. They move him back inside and like everything's fixed instantly. Right. And I think that's kind of 
what Jones might be going for here is I'm not going to be here. You're going to see what a future with this defense without, without me, me looks like. With and I think like you know, he knows no, no offense to Tershawn Wharton <laughs> or Derek Nandi. coming off of ACL surgery. Yeah, I don't think they're moving the needle in the middle, but I think he, like if you've watched the Chiefs over the last couple of years since Spagnolo took over as defensive coordinator, they've kind of gotten off to slow start. So this is this is a smart move by Jones because I think that combined with the fact that he's not in there, we could really see this defense struggle. And if this defense is struggling, like as we head into October. Maybe they drop a game that they weren't expected to drop. Like they go to Jacksonville, they go to the New York Jets. Those are two games that you could lose on the road if your defense right. is playing well. Maybe the Chiefs hit the panic button, and maybe they're willing to their to up their offer by a couple of million, and and Jones gets what he wants. I think the Chiefs are smarter smarter than that. I think they know that he has to come back for the second half because I think the reason why he wants to sit out till Week Nine is because it affects the the franchise tag. And how that kind of escalates from year to year. Uh, so I think he's going to come back. He's not going to just give up a, on a year of his career in his prime. Uh, a year where he can earn a bunch of money. I, I think they just kind of kind of have to like ride out the storm. Get him back. Hope the offense kind of carries them along for the first half of the season. And everything will be fine. I think that's how it ends up working out. But in the short term, it is a concern. Because you are playing against very good offenses to start the season. You're playing against right. Detroit. You're playing against Jacksonville. You're playing against the Jets. Even the Bears have a run game. And if you don't have Chris Jones in the middle yeah. of that defense, this run defense doesn't look great. So I think we're going to see this defense put to the test without Jones early on. And I wonder how that kind of affects negotiations going forward. All right, next item. The Eagles traded for Albert O. Swapped late round picks with the Broncos who I think were, it seemed like the writing was on the wall that he was going to get cut. Trader Howie swoops in, takes a flyer on a guy. They also, they pulled a similar move. They traded for Isaiah Rogers, um, or they, they added Isaiah Rogers, who is suspended for 2023 because of gambling. Um, but it's always interesting when we see the guys that the Eagles take late August flyers on. What did you think of the Albert O move? They're like the new Patriots, where if they sign a guy that you've heard of who didn't necessarily work out with the first <laughs> team, you're like, oh, he's going to be the best player that you've that, that's ever now. lived. They're going to turn him into Rob Gronkowski. Uh, I like Albert O. I think he's an athletic piece. I think there's going to be at least one or two plays that he makes this year, provided he like actually gets playing time, where you're like, oh, Albert O. Like he's going to go for like 40 yards because he's very athletic. He's he's very big. Big. I think that really benefits this team who dominates in the trenches and then kind of plays off that strength in the trenches with guys that can stretch the field vertically on the outside. And I think Alberto like fits into that paradigm perfectly if they can get him up to speed. The, the problem is this is the, now the second coaching staff that has given up on him. Actually the third that really right. hasn't given him a chance. Uh, Nathaniel Hackett, I think we can kind of overlook that was kind of a disaster and it doesn't really Maybe it doesn't speak to who he is as a player, but Sean Payton giving up on him. Sean Payton loves his tight ends and Denver added a lot of tight ends, a lot of competition to the tight end room this year. Maybe Sean Payton want is very particular about his tight ends. And well, wants right. When you style. say Sean Payton loves his tight ends. Yes, he loves tight ends, but he also really loves his tight ends. <laughs> he likes Adam and, and, Troutman for some yeah. reason. Uh, <laughs> 
But so maybe you could take it with a grain of salt, the fact that he hasn't kind of caught on with the team. But if any team's going to get the most out of him, it's this team. And I mean, if they get back to doing like two tight end stuff, you could definitely see his athleticism being a factor, being a thing that like changes a, a key game later on in the year. Right. So Philly was a great two tight end team last year. They were um, 62 of 95. 862 net yards, 563 air yards, nine touchdowns, no interceptions, led the league in passer rating out of two tight end sets, second only to Kansas City and EPA. They just didn't do it that much. Right. Um, it was only 113 dropbacks for them all the way, you know, from week one all the way through the Super Bowl. So bottom half of the league and the amount of time that they were spending doing that, even though they were super effective when they did it. And I think you can basically chalk that up to the fact that their depth behind Dallas Goddard is, you know, Grant Calcaterra and Jack Stoll. So I really like it. You know, I'm I'm totally Trader Howie at it again. Um, but I think I like it a little bit more for what it says about what they they are paying attention to in terms of their offense. I too have bought into Alberto hype in in moments past. I would definitely take the fact that it was Nathaniel Hackett who gave up on him and that Sean Payton is particular about sort of having his guys. I, I think both of those things are meaningful context, but I do think we have to say that a lot of that three separate coaching staffs have, have basically given up on this guy. He was a healthy scratch at times last year. It was a mess, but I, I don't think it's realistic to go Oh yeah, Alberto. I've heard of that guy, so he's definitely this is definitely going to work out. But I do think that they are, you know, they're taking a flyer on a guy who not only has a lot of athletic talent, but who, if he does fill that role, if it does work, it has been proven to be something that works really well within the context of this Eagles offense. So it'll be, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it works out. The other thing, though, is that they swapped late round picks. And this is part of their strategy. This is part of Roseman's strategy is if it doesn't work, you just move on and you try again. Yeah, there's there's no risk to this. I wonder what what's like the worst move Roseman can make where we might like try to hype it up a little bit. Like he could sign <laughs> Tim Tebow and we would be like, oh, tight end no, quarterback no. hybrids are the future. Uh, no, absolutely. The wrong. <laughs> they don't have a punter wrong. on their roster right now. Maybe you that's some new cutting edge uh, approach to roster building. You don't, you, you, you skimp at punter. You just don't punt. Absolutely. They have Albert O now. They're never going to have to punt. They're never going to punt. All right. Let's take another break. We're going to come back and go off the field a little bit. Go into, go into the world of streaming. Talk a little hard knocks. Talk a little Netflix. Katie Baker is going to join us for that. It's going to be great. Baker is here. She wrote the Netflixification of football is only beginning. Great story on the ringer.com. Fabulous website. The story is about Katie. You can put it into your own words much better than I can. I'm sure. But about this rise in football, football adjacent sort of sports doc programming, primarily on Netflix, which has really been leaning into it with um, the untold series new one about uh the florida gators quarterback obviously this has been the summer when every quarterback around the league has been asked if they're going to participate in, in season two of quarterback 
Um, what made you interested in writing about this, Katie? Yeah, like you said, it's the new uh, best shape of their life is the is the are you going to be on quarterback question? It's at every training camp. Um, but, you know, on it, kind of like what you said, it just it started to feel almost like inescapable um, when you have the combination of sort of the, you know, the biggest sport in the country with Netflix, which, as we've seen recently with all the, you know, the talk about the show Suits that it's kind of brought back into the culture, like it has the ability to just turn a fire hose on and Right. Inject, you know, a lot of programming into people's homes. And, uh, you know, in some ways, turning on Netflix and seeing what's on is like the new, you know, flipping channels in a, in a hotel room and seeing what's on. So, um, yeah, so that's that was why we wanted to just kind of look, you know, I wanted to kind of see what the process is behind how they make these, who's making them, why those people are making them. Um, so, yeah, that was the genesis of the story. What? Have you watched maybe, you know, if you want to be if you want to be polite and professional and discreet about this question, you're you're more than welcome to. But which of these have you watched because you want to watch them and because they're great shows? And which of you maybe watched because you're going to write a story about it and are sort of interested in how the whole thing is working? Which are the best ones? Well, it's it's funny you say that because in a in a very early um, version of the story, I was kind of reckoning with my own like, you know, I'm writing this story. I've interviewed the director of the story of Swamp Kings, for example. So it's like, I don't want to savage Swamp Kings. Um, but, you know, so, you know, I'm almost like having the same dilemma that, you know, if you're the director of the of the Johnny, you know, Johnny Football documentary, you're working so closely with Johnny Football, you're not necessarily going to turn like a total critical eye onto a lot of things. So like, I sort of felt that myself while writing it. Um, but, you know, I actually I'm kind of a good audience for these things because I know who all these people are. I've, I'm familiar with the stories like I, I don't get confused, but a lot of it's also new to me because I'm not totally immersed in football all the time or, you know, those sorts of things. Um, I really liked quarterback, like just, you know, even apart from writing about it, um, I love just seeing the different ways that men can be strange and and how that strange strangeness makes them good at the at the same job in like very different ways and um you know thinking about like who would you want to be on quarterback in the future like i would have never have really picked out her cousins but i just felt like that was really i really felt like i was getting to know a person um you know there's obviously a few things that they left out um you know from the full story but yeah. So like, that's one that I actually enjoyed. Um, you know, in general, right now there's, it's not a Netflix documentary, but like BS High is kind of incredible. And I think is a really good example of like, what an amazing one can look like. Yeah. Um, you know, I think some of the other ones, like I loved what Brian Curtis said on the Press Box um, podcast, which is like, not all of these are necessarily documentaries, like some of them are memoirs in a sense. And so when you look <laughs> at it that way, it's, yeah, you, you know, they, they view a little bit differently. Stephen, have I don't know that we've talked about quarterback. What has been your uh, your again? I'm struggling for the word because as uh, <laughs> documentary does not always feel right, but no, yeah, football adjacent content conception via streaming platform. Where are you? I I thought quarterback was really good, and I I wasn't a fan of Swamp Kings just because of the the concerns that everyone had about the stakeholders kind of narrating it, it urban meyer specifically uh 
And I, I was trying to figure out like, what's the difference between the two? Cause there's certainly an element of that. We didn't see all of Kirk cousins. We didn't see like the COVID stuff. He did manage to get in his favorite Margaret Thatcher quote. <laughs> and you don't really know a person until you figure out their favorite quote from, uh, from Thatcher. But still the uh, single funniest moment of any of any of these series all summer is that to me is that quarterback <laughs> began with Kirk Cousins quoting Margaret. Thatcher. First episode. First, like five minutes. But uh, I know I've brought it up like six times on various podcasts, but I, I just will never, ever, ever get over that one choice. It, it, it's such a, a peak Kirk moment. But I, I do wonder, Katie, like in your what sense you got talking to these people, how much of this. I think we've seen an explosion of of sports content, especially in the documentary space. How much do you think of it is based on the success of uh, The Last Dance? And I'm wondering if like these executives, especially at Netflix, who are getting into this, kind of understand why The Last Dance worked the way that it did, and, uh, to the level that it did, and how that differs from some of these other topics. Like, for instance, the Florida football thing, we all knew about Florida football. We didn't know the details. We knew about like Aaron Hernandez. We knew about Percy Harvin, but we didn't really see it in the documentary. But like some of those stories that the Bulls were willing to tell in the 90s, we didn't really know. I wonder if there's like a difference in how the executives look at these stories and when they happen and how familiar we are with them. Well, one thing like that's going to be so interesting to to see is Netflix just won the bidding war for uh, like a 10 part uh, Jerry Jones uh, one which to me seems like a, a Michael Jordan analog in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be good. Like Jerry Jones is someone that's not afraid to say things. Um, and a lot of the people from that era or, it, you know, or it could suffer from some of the same problems. But um, to go back to your other question about sort of this wave of sports uh, content, I mean, it's interesting because when I think back over my illustrious career, um, you know, 10 years ago, even more, we were in the midst of a, of a wave of sports you know, content with, um, I think Hard Knocks first came out in 2001, but then it was on hiatus until 2007. And then 30 for 30, I think came out in like 2009. I remember when I first started covering the NHL, they were doing like a, a hockey Hard Knocks knockoff um, called 24-7. And that was like in 2010. Um, I think what's different now is that you have like, you know, to build on the idea of like, some of these are more like memoirs. A lot of them are also more like Players Tribune articles. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, right. um, and surprise, Players Tribune's involved in, in, I think, in Swamp Kings, and you know they have their own production arm. And I think athletes and teams now know that that route is like available to them in a way. Like, you know, if you compare the thirty for thirty called the U, um, which was about the Miami Hurricanes in the '90s, kind of a similar story with uh, with the Florida documentary. Like, that was a very differently done piece. Um, and, you know, it reckoned with sort of the social aspect of the times and all these things. And I think the difference is like, that's what documentaries were then. Um, and now there's kind of these different ways you can go and you can have a softer focus or you can be involved and, you know, you have your pick of the litter with who you might want to work with. And so, um, I, that to me stands out as like the, the difference in this like new wave that's currently going on. It makes me wonder who they're, who these shows, and I know it differs program to program, but like who they're for. I know I slacked Katie this, but my, um, I was at dinner with my boyfriend's sister-in-law who does not watch football like at all. Um, who loved quarterback and 
loved Kirk Cousins and loved Kirk Cousins' wife. Tell her to call me. <laughs> and I was just like talking with this person who I love and who I think is like eminently reasonable. And she was just like, man, that Kirk Cousins seems really cool. And okay. It's like, what is going on here? Now I have to push back. I'm going to have to start like a moral cool, panic. Yeah. <laughs> These documentaries are making people like Kirk Cousins. And that's well, that's what I'm saying. But like, if you don't... Insidious. If you don't have any context for Kirk Cousins, I do think you watch that and you're kind of like dorky, funny, like whatever guy. And you're not really getting like COVID Yeah, no, that is, that is a place where like there could have been a little bit of uh, just a, a little... Tiny, you know, just because I feel like everyone has this, people, or not everyone, but people that don't know him have this reaction. And then someone says, well, take a look at this link <laughs> or something right. like that. And you're like, oh, okay, there's just a, you know, a there's the rub there. or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, even like this could not matter less. But when I was watching Quarterback, I was like, we need to be more honest about the relationship between Marcus Mariota and Arthur Smith please because it is not as positive as this is like at least setting it up to have been yeah. but also i'm just not sure they care like i i'm not i don't think that i am the person that i don't think that any of us are really the people that they make this make these series and go like this is who we want to win over because they probably know that like we're all going to watch it we're all going to at least give it a shot and it seems like, especially with Netflix, as we've seen, like there's just an ability to get stuff in front of tons and tons of people where I think more people are just consuming this stuff as their first real look at who these people are. So I'm curious, Katie, if you've gotten any sense of like what the strategy is as far as who they're looking at their core audience as. Yeah, I mean, well, a sh quarterback kind of stands apart from some of these other, um, like kind of the the Johnny Football and the Florida. Those are all part of like the Untold series, um, which is kind of its own thing. And then quarterback was, I mean, I think did really well ratings wise. I mean, it's always hard to parse the numbers when you have streaming involved and like what they tell you and how to compare it with things. But like, you know, I was kind of trying to compare it with like regular television and, you know, they had viewership that was on par with like a 60 minutes episode, like for each episode. And that's, you know, that's like right. a chunk of society, you know. Um, so Falling I think for in love with Kirk Cousins, <laughs> yeah, exactly. all being duped about. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but what's interesting is I feel like when it comes to these, for example, Swamp Kings, like you, it's a lot easier to have someone just sit down and watch this quarterback show, which is done in a more, um, you know, just like audience friendly way than to convince someone that knows nothing about football to watch a four part series about a team from, you know, what was it? Eight years ago, kind of right. like just a strange realm. And like, so I think the, you know, the level of like what the viewers for something like Swamp Kings expect is a lot more inside football, so to speak. And, you know, you're, so they're disappointed when they aren't getting something new. Um, quarterback's interesting because like you have these sort of human interest stories, but then you have like, I mean, I thought the episode where they did all the play calling, like that was really illuminating to me. And I was like, wow, how did they get all this? And, you know, the answer is that unlike Hard Knocks, they're not airing it, you know, at the same time. The so, time, yeah. yeah. So they're not like giving away state secrets. It's all probably new 
plays and names anyway the following season. And um, but that stuff I thought was probably cool. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's like for you know football minds like you, it's just another day in the office. But I was like, I'd never no, really I mean, I've- seen it like that. It's stuff like that. Even hard knocks sometimes. Yeah. There's a moment or two where you just don't have. I mean, even even when they can be at a practice that's like a training camp practice or something that we can be at. Half these facilities. I mean, I was out of the ra- at, at Raiders camp a few weeks ago. You are literally a football field away from where they are practicing. So even yeah. if you've got like binoculars. So, no, I, I think um, it's. All of that stuff to me is always a question of editing. The strength, I think, of a lot of this programming is just the 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 if it's archival or archival, but from two weeks ago, the amount of content that they have to work with tends to, at least by by my estimation, be very, very high and very, very compelling. How uh, how do you think they view the actual filmmakers in like this context? Like, I feel like Catherine English was from the UK and she got to helm this documentary about college football, which I think is like a uniquely American thing and not something that people even understand really the the fascination with it outside of America, but they, they gave her the reins to this documentary. And I think some people wondered if like, it, it might have been better with someone who has a, a firmer grasp on the, the culture of college football and understands what that Florida team meant back then. I'm wondering if Netflix feels the same or any of these companies that are making these documentaries or if they just see them as kind of like a production line thing. Like you just get people in place that know how to spit out a, a documentary instead of someone that's going to spit out something that they actually care about. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, there's it's interesting because that. Swamp Kings in particular is under the untold mantle, but I think is the first one in the untold series that is sort of a third party production. Um, like, whereas a lot of the other ones are all kind of done either by these directors, the way brothers or kind of like their inner circle. Um, so it's a sign that they're kind of starting to like work with, you know, third party things. And, you know, like you said, there's a little bit of a production line feeling to it sometimes. Um, that one, you know, one thing that's interesting is like that project in particular, when you think about what the wrangling that must have gone on to, to get, cause they really do have a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of people that, that weren't involved, but too, but they have significant Tebow, they, you know, Urban Meyer right. for better or worse, but like, just to think about like the process of getting Urban Meyer was probably interesting. Um, and it makes me wonder if having someone with such a different perspective was like, helped them convince people to do it, you know, that it wasn't this a hard hitting college football investigative reporter, you know, trying Mm -hmm. to pitch the case. Like, I think that would have been a different conversation. So, you know, and that I think led to some of the notable omissions, such as a lot of talk about Aaron Hernandez, you know, he's mentioned, but like briefly and, um, you know, so you can kind of see those like, you know, machinations taking place behind the scenes. And I'm, um, you know, I understand how that goes. Like, that's part of the thing is like you get the access and sometimes getting the access doesn't necessarily help you. And um, not to switch sports, but I was thinking about like the show Winning Time, uh, you know, about the the Lakers of the 80s. And a lot of people, you know, say, well, they didn't, they don't have their blessing. The Lakers don't like it. And then John C. Riley was asked about it once. And he was like, you know, people always say, how could you do this show without these guys? 
And my feeling is, how could we do this show with these guys? And I actually <laughs> think there's like something to be said for that. Because I mean, at the same time, there was like a Lakers like regular documentary that was authorized. No one watched that or talked about that. Right. Like no one cared. It was kind of, you know, no offense. I'm sure some people did, but you know what I mean? What I mean is, yeah. look, like I, th- I remember, I remember when the Players' Tribune became a thing, right? And there was, I think, this moment of panic is too too strong, but there was a moment of like, oh my gosh, all of these paradigms within sports media are are really shifting, where all of the subjects have realized that they can get their messages across any way they want without the, you know, they they don't have the need for media for outside media for independent media what's going to happen does this mean that like beat writing is just totally screwed and all of these things and it never it, i mean it just didn't really work that way because sometimes it's just frankly not that good like people are not always the best at at analyzing themselves um it has been interesting to see where like i think just because of the production value and the access when you're not just talking about somebody's written words but literal real-time footage i do think that's like a little bit more of a legitimate question in this space just because the three-dimensional audio video like stuff that people who are involved have access to is going to be of a higher quality than someone writing an essay about themselves generally but it's still a it's still a it's still a factor right is like people just aren't generally that great at self-analysis yeah i do wonder if like the the dramas based on real events like like winning time for instance is the next the next wave of of content uh like you kind of see it on like the true crime side with netflix where like they started out making all these documentaries and they were popular and now you're seeing them come up with like actual series like the the Dahmer series for instance was really popular i remember and i wonder if like winning time and then kind of the blowback, the pushback against Swamp Kings kind of leads to that being a more valuable piece of content than, oh, here's Urban Meyer talking about how great the four years he spent at Florida were. Yeah, yeah. no, that's such a good point. Like, y- you know, even with like when OJ Made in America came yeah. out um, and uh, then I think I can't remember if it was before or after, but it was like right around the same time yeah, when right. the, um, you know, the live action the, one yeah, <laughs> with FX David Schwimmer. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, you know, both of those together, you know, (laughs) and, you know, that OJ documentary was incredible. But um, but yeah, I mean, I I could see that being sort of the next like, you know, especially because right now there's been a trend in like these movies about companies or, you know, the air and right. um, The the flame and hot Cheetos. And it's like not that far of a leap to, you know, the company to be a franchise or, you know, a sports agent or whatever it is like um, I could see that that land grab taking place for sure. So who do, you, do we get to play Tim Tebow? <laughs> oh man. That, and who plays Urban Meyer? really hard. Yeah. Urban Meyer, you, you could probably just get Jim Caviezel to reprise his role from passion of the Christ. Like don't change a thing. And he just stands in for Tim Tebow. What did you guys, I do have a question. What did you think of Tebow and Swamp Kings? Because I actually felt like I got little bits of, in, of insight into him that I hadn't had. The one that stuck out was just him talking about being a kid and the coach saying, you know, everyone just wants to have fun. And my in my mind, Tim Tebow would agree with that sentiment. And instead, like, we saw him get almost as heated as I've ever seen him in recalling that memory of a coach saying, have fun. Um, but I'm curious what you guys think. 
I would like Steven to take this one first because I just am excited to hear what he has to say. I haven't watched it yet. Oh. <laughs> I didn't prepare. I, I read the article. I haven't watched it because I've heard all the negative reviews and like I was just like, oh, it's not for me. I'm not. You're like, I didn't watch it because I lived it. I don't need to see it. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> okay. Maybe if if you ever if you ever find yourself just desperate for some more Tebow time, you'll have to fill us in on what you think. I Okay. I don't think so. I don't have like a super reflexively negative reaction to Tim Tebow in general. I just don't care. I have a super reflexively negative reaction to Urban Meyer and Tim Tebow's relationship. Um, which is, which was, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm making prayer hands here if you can't see. But yeah. I don't get it. And that scene in particular that you're describing did like does feel like genuine insight into, to, why he is the way he is and how he is the way he is. I could not possibly like my experience as a human being is so diametrically opposed to that. Where like I had a very formative experience in high school once where I overheard two of my friends talking in um, a lobby during like class registration week where you could like switch around your schedule and everything talking about their strategies for trying to get in like easier classes with easier t-shirts and blah, 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 where like I had this massive epiphany of, oh my God, people aren't just trying to have fun and learn things that like really shook me to my core. So I was the opposite of Tim Tebow and probably still am in a lot of ways. And I'm sure that's why <laughs> he has much more money and success than I do. And I'm happy for him, but it, he it, probably got a better arm. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. Uh, <laughs> I just sometimes like I I really experience a lot of these things as further evidence that like on some level, even though I cover a lot of these people and spend a lot of time thinking about them, I am not like them and I will never understand them. <laughs> so that's how I felt. I, I mean, I, I think that sometimes when I'm playing tennis and I'm like, you know, if I just lose here, I can go home sooner. Yes. And then I'm like, you know, I, I clearly do not have that dog in me, um, yeah. which is fine. Yeah. We can't all. We cannot all have that dog in us. <laughs> there is not enough dog to go around. <laughs> uh, all right, Katie, it's been so fun to talk to you. And, and I really encourage everybody to go read that story because it's really interesting. Um, I will ask that you leave us with either a prediction or a hope for season two of Quarterback. Who should they um, feature? Well, there, it's it's funny. I was just reading the uh, the story about Matthew Stafford's wife talking about how he's having trouble relating to the the youth in the locker room, <laughs> and I was like, man, I wish this were all getting captured by the the good the fine folks at NFL Films slash Netflix. Um, that that just cracked me up. Um, you know, I'd love to see like we've heard that Joe Burrow might be involved. Um, that would be fun to watch. Um, I would love to see like a good, you know, Geno Smith. Like I already consider him to be like the Forrest Gump of the NFL. So music it would just Steven be like Sears. one more thing. Yeah, exactly. And I don't, I'm not just saying that to like to make Steven happy, but that that was another one I had that I, you know, I could only dream. See, all Burrow my has answers to be the get. My, all my for, answers would be, be would be like negative. Like I want to see like Russell Wilson and Sean Payton react on a daily basis. Yeah. I want to see Tua learning how to fall. Uh, that actually would be good. Tua with all the jujitsu really training one, or whatever it was. Yeah. yeah. 
Aaron Rodgers? Can we get Aaron Rodgers? Hard Knocks is already there. Just keep the cameras around. Like, I, I don't see why that's a big deal. <laughs> we don't want that's that. That's my Nobody dream. Those that. three. Give me Aaron Rodgers, yeah. Russ, and Tua. Russell Wilson with, yeah, with four kids too, right? Like, that's... <laughs> Sierra like a, uh, is involved. <laughs> and what, aren't there, like, there are like 16 bathrooms in his house? I just want to look at that. <laughs> that's all I want. Just a whole episode dedicated to each bathroom. There's a story behind everyone. <laughs> That one would crush the 60 minutes ratings. That's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Katie Baker, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to say goodbye to Hard Knocks. Did you enjoy the season finale? I did. I did. I, you know, like in a series when they have like the, the episode recap before the episode starts. And they right. bring up something that happened a few episodes ago. And you're like, oh, they're going to bring up that storyline again. For me, this this week, it was them showing Hackett talk about the movie Goldmember. And I was like, oh, <laughs> we're in for some good Hackett nonsense. And I, I feel like this, this episode, they made him look like he was incompetent. Like, usually you get the, the hard knocks, like, PR spin, and they make you look, they look, make you look good. But I thought in this episode... They kind of made Aaron Rodgers look like the adult in the room. This is kind of something we've been talking about. But you, you they saw... made Aaron Rodgers look like the adult in the room and the offensive coordinator. Yes. Yes. Because like you saw the offense kind of struggling in practice. And then it was just like hacking on the sideline being like, oh, that was fucked up. Oh, God. What did we we, we did something wrong there. We got to fix it. And then they show and then like this cut montage. to montage. Of Rodgers being like, like, you break it 12 yards, you do this, you do this, right. blah, 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 blah. And then the offense goes back down out and they score a touchdown. And then they come back to Hackett, who's just sitting on the sidelines being like, woo, nice. like, good job. <laughs> That's all they showed. Nothing else. There was no Hackett being involved. And I'm like, this is like this is the the picture they're trying to paint for us, that Aaron Rodgers is running this offense. And like I kind of thought about it. Last year was the first year Nathaniel Hackett spent on a staff, an NFL coaching staff, where he was the senior most offensive-minded coach. This is the second year we're getting it. Because in the past, when he was an offense coordinator, he was under Doug Marone. He was under, uh, I'm forgetting the other coach now, uh, Matt Flora, obviously. Matt in, LaFleur, in Green Bay. yeah. He wasn't calling plays. He wasn't running the offense. He wasn't like the final say. Now he's in this on this coaching staff with Robert Sala, who's obviously a defensive-minded coach. And you would think it's Nathaniel Hackett and Aaron Rodgers kind of figuring this offense out. And I mean, Aaron Rodgers is a smart quarterback, but he's not a coach. He's never been an offensive coordinator. He's never called plays. We've never seen Nathaniel Hackett thrive in this situation where he's calling plays or where he's the, the head of the offense. So that episode and that little montage and how they portrayed Nathaniel Hackett kind of worried me about the season in a way that I didn't expect it to. I did see good things out of the offense. In that that preseason game, like outside of Hard Knocks, like on film, yeah. But that's a concern for me now. Like I'm kind of concerned that Aaron Rodgers is the offensive coordinator and how that will work out. Well, I think it gives you some insight into why that's been a tense. Why he historically sometimes gets into sort of tense situations because clearly he wants a ton of input. He is not afraid to point out when there are mistakes or things that he doesn't like. And I'm sure that there's a honeymoon period where that's really effective and then it becomes grading. And then when it becomes grading, you don't have as clear of a hierarchy between coaches and players. 
when it's the star quarterback who obviously has power and leverage and significance within an organization that outpaces a a rookie wide receiver or even even a, a star player on offense who's not the quarterback, but it's not as as clean and clear cut. So I, I agree with you that there's there's some foreshadowing of potential. Maybe this isn't so easy there. I do think it was mostly my takeaway from that was just hard knocks gave gave Nathaniel Hackett a, a rough ride. I mean, we started with the story about Sean Payton insulting him, and there was absolutely no attempt to like give this guy a redemption narrative. It was just this episode was by far the the most overt about it because, as you said, yeah. he was a clear cheerleader to Rogers's like effective coach, and then he did the thing about um how he cuts his own hair. Yeah. Well, no, no. It was worse than that. He wanted to cut his own hair, but his parents wouldn't buy him. What was it called? The Flovey? The Flovey. Yeah. His, he, the, the, the ending of that story was his mom never got it for him. That he just, he asked for it. Oh, all I, the thought time he, I thought he eventually bought one for himself, but maybe that's wrong. Okay. Well, he wanted to cut his own hair with a- His parents didn't trust him. As, with an as seen on TV, like weird contraption sold by and Billy if, Mays. Yeah, it like connects to the the vacuum cleaner somehow, and it cuts your hair. Like his parents wouldn't trust him with that. I'm supposed to trust him with the Jets' offense. <laughs> I don't think Aaron Rodgers trusts. He him said Tugalicious again. He said t- he's learned nothing from his time in Denver and why why that fa- failed. Yeah, it's because he uses terms like Tugalicious. Not only did he use it, he put it up on a power play or PowerPoint display. He had a whole yeah. PowerPoint for the offense. Uh. Yeah, this this isn't making Hackett look good, and I, I I have to know like how how online are the editors of the show? Like, do they know the Nathaniel Hackett storyline about how he was kind of like incompetent in Denver, kind of let Russell Wilson run things, and how he was kind of brought in as Aaron Rodgers' lackey, for lack of a better term? I wonder if like the editors know that storyline and kind of are leaning into it, or is that something that they're kind of seeing as they're looking at the footage from this training camp? I think that's a big question. Because if if, like if it was me editing the show, I would have edited the same way they just did this last episode. Like no notes, perfect. (laughs) That is my perception of Nathaniel Hackett, and that's the perception I would want to put out there. But if these are guys that had like no opinion of Nathaniel Hackett coming into the show. And by the end of it, they're giving us these like these cuts of the episode. Like that would be my concern. Well, but so here's why I think that that they are essentially showing us what's going on. What they're showing of Rogers seems right, right? I mean, do we believe that he's not actually that detail oriented? That he's not actually that vocal? That he's not actually that sort of dogged about? getting on other members of the offense when there are mistakes that he's he's not taking such an active role. I don't. I think that that to me, my assessment based on how it's coming across on the show and also what we know of Rogers more broadly is that that is totally authentic. And if that's totally authentic, then I think it it sort of only fits with Hackett fitting in the way that it seems like he fits in, which I also think is totally reasonable. For a guy who, as you pointed out, has mostly worked under offensive head coaches and also had the years that got him to a position where he could become a head coach as badly as that went and became someone who is more broadly known as a, a, an NFL household name with Aaron Rodgers. 
Right. So I think this is all Nathaniel Hackett knows. Like, if anything, we're sort of getting some insight into into the 2022 Broncos and why that was so destined for failure as soon as as their move to get him didn't end up landing them Rodgers. I guess it's not like really a question of is Rodgers that type of guy? Like, is he that detail focused? I think it's more how effective is that approach to playing quarterback? And that's right. the answer. You're not going to get that answer from Hard Knock because they're going to cut it in a way that makes it like that was always going to be the case. We knew that from episode one, just how they were sh- portraying Rodgers and his impact on the locker room. So I, yeah, I, I do think it's a fair question. I, I don't know, but I, I, I feel like this is the episode where you kind of got the, the most insight. I don't know about the best insight or the most accurate insight, but the best insight into that relationship and kind of. Who who has the power there? And yeah, if things go bad, Rogers. who's going to be the one that gets the have final say on how to adjust going forward? Right. I mean, the the only thing there is that if things go bad, we have seen it. So and look, this would not be the first time that Aaron Rodgers tries to have things both ways, but it does seem like he's coming across in a way that should should indicate he's got ownership of this thing. And if it works, he deserves the credit. And if it doesn't, that should fall on his shoulders too. Now, obviously, we'll we'll see on that. I do think I think this has been a very good season of Hard Knocks yeah. because this was the team that everybody would have wanted to see on Hard Knocks. It was you know you often don't get that right just because there's restrictions of which teams are eligible. But we got to look at the number one training camp that you would want to look at, mm-hmm. and the characters are good, and it was fun to watch. You could definitely see that they capitulated on a lot of stuff to the Jets because the Jets really, really, really didn't want to participate. I mean, you saw the rough edges of how they dealt with cuts on this episode where you get, you know, they sort of try to recreate that storyline, which we always see where we get to know Tanzel Smart a little bit, Jerome Cap a little bit. Xavier Gibson and Jason Brownlee, the sort of four cuspy roster guys. But then you don't. We learn by the end of it that Jerome Cap, the receiver who um, did the Eminem rap. Got cut. But the other three and smart did didn't make the team, whereas the two receivers, Gibson and Brownlee, um, did make it. You don't even get that information. No, you I don't. don't think it matters that they can't go in the room, but it was like they just couldn't even um, come full circle on those stories. And so I thought it stuck out both in that way and also just how we have come to the end of this hard knocks road <laughs> and know for certain that this was just the Aaron Rodgers show and they were happy to do the whole thing and in. in a way that highlighted him as savior of the Jets and coordinator of the offense and mocker of Zach Wilson and just all of these things. And it was so centered around him. And I think that had to do with getting participation where I just felt like you could see a lot of, you could see a lot of those, um, those creases or whatever you want to call it. But I still ultimately think it was a very successful season just because they were showing us what we wanted to see. Yeah. Uh, 
Aaron Rodgers looked like the only person that wanted to be participating in the show. Like he he's the only one that seemed to embrace the show. Him and Nathaniel Hackett. Like when you're Nathaniel Hackett, when you're the type of guy that like likes to pull up YouTube clips, which I assumed Nathaniel Hackett was that type of guy, but this Hard Knocks gave us the proof that he is. He he probably was having a ball because he got to show the clips to an HBO audience. Like he's been itching to show everyone the flow V for years, and he finally got his his platform to do it. Those are the only two people that I thought wanted to be there. Uh, do you think he's I getting w- a cut? Do you think Nathaniel Hackett's getting a cut of flow V sales? <laughs> are they sell? He's the only he's member. He's like sale. the only guy that buys the the product. But uh, I, I wish we would have seen more. Like, if we were going to be so focused on Aaron Rodgers, and that was always going to be the case, I wish we would have seen more about him developing his relationship with uh, Garrett Wilson. Uh, right. I I think that's, like, the key to this offense, is him kind of rekindling what he had with Devontae Adams. Like, a guy, an easy outlet, you could just throw the ball, and you know he's going to do work after the catch, or he's going to make a great catch downfield. And you kind of saw that relationship forming in the Giants game, but you didn't see anything in the show about it. Like even the touchdown. Yeah. They never really did. They did a fair bit of, Oh, Aaron, what do you think of Garrett? But not a lot of, Hey Garrett, what do you think of Aaron? Yeah. Not how, like, how are they getting on the same page? How does this work? Maybe that's just like the football guy in me wanted to see that behind the scenes and the, the general audience doesn't, but like even the touchdown, uh, William scores against the giants was a a called run play where they kind of gave each other a look before the snap and, and, kind of improvised that the fade that he threw to him. I wanted to see like the behind the scenes, like how that worked out, like how they worked to getting to the point where they can kind of just give each other a look on the sideline. And there were a couple plays from the Giants game that kind of fit that, that type of play. And we didn't see any of it. We didn't see any of the behind the scenes work that went into it. I was kind of disappointed about that. I did enjoy like his back and forth with uh, Jihad Ward. Yeah. Uh, great move on, on Ward's part, playing the, I don't know you either card with Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> That would that would be my just you know just dig yourself in. Who dig are deeper. you? <laughs> All right. Well, fun season of hard knocks. It's been fun to recap it. Um, Steven covered a lot. Anything else? I think we've touched it all. Oh, uh, new best defense of the week is the Buffalo Bills. I'm back on the train. <laughs> the defensive line is deeper than I gave it credit for. Uh, the secondary looks better. I like that. Micah Hyde's back. Uh, Sean McDermott, the changes he's made on the staff. He's he's handing off play calling duties after two preseason games, which might be a red flag, but I like his his adaptability is the way I'll spin it. Buffalo Bills, best defense in the NFL. This week. Even with Von Miller on, on PUP? He'll be fine. Probably more important to have him, him at his best late in the year. All right. Good stuff. Excited for that Bills defense. This has been the Ringer NFL show. I'm Nora Princiati. As always, he is Stephen Ruiz. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Cliff Augustine for filling in on production for this episode and to Connor Nevins and Arjuna Rambapal for additional production supervision. be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT-STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 
1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. Call 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net in West Virginia or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York.